Hiya folks, you're very welcome and thank you for joining the Jason Joyce Health Podcast. Do you feel like you're running through life constantly switched on and trying your best to be that bit healthier, that bit happier? You may just feel lost or disconnected. My aim is to help you slow down and take stock of what is truly important to you in your life. What nurtures your soul? Through stories and honest conversations with people from different walks of life. My hope is that this podcast will help educate, entertain, challenge and inspire you in all areas of health and happiness. I'm Jason Joyce. It's time to stop running and start living. I hope this podcast finds you in good form today and you're enjoying season two. Please continue to share it with friends, family or wherever you think it might help or share it on social media. I really, really value your support and encouragement. So a big thank you. And as usual, a big thank you to Dermot Milton for helping me with all the artwork. Check him out on Around the Square on all social media platforms. Today's guest is very passionate about living our best life through nutrition. She has completed two masters, one in clinical dietetics and one in clinical nutrition, on top of a Bachelor of Science degree in food science. She firmly believes you can't live your best life if you don't fuel your body to do this. In today's episode, we discuss food as an important pillar in a healthy lifestyle, stripping it right back to the basics and cutting out the confusion. We share real tips you can implement in your life right now and to get the future you want. Today's episode is unbelievably empowering and I'm very honoured to introduce today's guest, registered dietitian and clinical nutritionist Elaine Caffrey. Sit back and enjoy this epic episode. Hello Elaine, I'm very happy to have you on today's podcast. How are you? Hi Jason, thanks so much for having me. Very exciting stuff. I'm really excited to learn from you about nutrition and the impact nutrition has on health. Before we get straight into that, can you let the listeners know who you are? Yeah, definitely. Hi everyone, my name's Elaine Caffrey. I'm a registered dietitian working in Peamount Hospital in Dublin. So I've spent the last seven years studying all things food and nutrition, a long and grueling path. But yeah, I finally got there. So I'm now really happy working as a dietitian covering respiratory illnesses, covering intellectual disabilities and old age care. Excellent. We'll get straight into respiratory disease and nutrition. Normally people, when they think about nutrition, they're thinking about fitness and six packs. So how does that look, respiratory disease? And I also see you're into cardiac health as well. So how does that look on that phase? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely not the first thing people think of. When we say dietetics, people think of weight management is definitely the main thing that comes up. But nutrition is so important in every aspect of health. So in respiratory illnesses, I mean, the people I'm seeing mainly are people with COPD, which is a chronic disorder of the lungs. So basically you have very difficult breathing. So it means that your energy requirements go way up. So you're living with a chronic illness where your lungs aren't working at full capacity. So One of the main things we see is something called sleep apnea. It's where people, their lungs aren't working at full capacity. So while they're sleeping, they actually stop and start breathing and they end up waking up gasping and things like that. So one of the main causes of that is obesity and overweight. So people come in suffering a lot. Maybe they haven't been able to sleep for, it could be years, could be 10, 20 years since they've had a good sleep. So they're living with chronic anxiety, chronic depression, they are, you know, binge eating, comfort eating. So the approach we would take is we'd come in and we'd do some weight management advice for them. So it'd be all about managing their lifestyle. What's their lifestyle look like? What are their stress levels like? How can nutrition play a part in that? So we'd be talking to them about healthy, balanced diet, 
with some people, it'll be quite easy. I mean, they'll probably be following quite a good diet and we just might need to make a few little tweaks with maybe cutting down on the carbohydrates. Maybe they're having a lot of fats and, you know, sugary foods. That would be a simple change for other people. It'll be a lifelong series of bad habits. So they may have just gone down the wrong path. They might know what they're doing. They might know the right foods to eat. So one thing we would be working with would be things like anti-inflammatory foods. So we'd often be recommending things like omega-3s. So that's your fatty fish. So anti-inflammatory foods can really bring down inflammation in the lungs. Another thing that people can have with respiratory disorders is malnutrition. So it's kind of the other side of the spectrum. So we'll be getting people again, their bodies working so hard to allow them to breathe properly that they are losing a lot of weight. For those people to be all about really building them up again, getting all the right energy and protein into them to ensure that they can go to work, play with their kids, things like that. Excellent. All right, where to start? Anti-inflammatory foods. This is a big thing I do with patients. I talk about bringing the body into a healing environment, a natural healing process. And I always talk about anti-inflammatory foods. Where do you start there? And how important is that in your health and recovery? Yes. So there are anti-inflammatory aspects in nearly all foods. You can talk about something as simple as porridge, for example. Most people start their day or hopefully they do with a nice bowl of porridge and they think they're getting loads of fibre. But there's actually something called beta-glucan, which is a protein in porridge. And the way that's anti-inflammatory is that grips onto cholesterol in your arteries and drags the cholesterol and it binds to it and it makes you excrete it. So the way that's anti-inflammatory is that it's releasing the cholesterol from your arteries, causing them to contract and allows them to be able to pulse your blood easier. Anti-inflammatory foods, I mean, if your body is in an inflammatory state, you are constantly stressed. So how can your body do anything else? You can't utilize the nutrients properly from your food if you're constantly in a chronic inflammatory state. So another example is someone with celiac disease. Someone with celiac disease has an inflammatory response to gluten. So when they eat gluten, their body goes into an attack. Basically, they become really deficient. So they can't absorb their vitamins. They can't absorb their minerals from the food. So it means that their body has no time to do anything else except for fight this gluten. So often we would go for things, an anti-inflammatory food might be something as simple as fruit and vegetables. Fruit and vegetables have things called antioxidants, and they are one of nature's best anti-inflammatory properties. People think it's so boring, but that's why we always go back to the food pyramid. So the main thing on the food pyramid is your fruit and veg. Excellent. I've had a lot of injuries myself and the one thing you want to do is when you're injured, especially in sport, is eat crap food because you're not training and it's so counterproductive. Absolutely. I mean, look, we're all human. The one thing you want to do when you are stressed or if you've just come back from a big match and you've done a run and you've wasted loads of energy, all you want to do is get that energy into you as quick as you can. So you go for your chocolate bar, you go for your popcorn, you go for your fast food takeaway. But unfortunately, those foods, while I would never label them as bad foods because we're really trying to get away from that, but they really don't have a great nutrition profile. So they're really high in things like your saturated fats and your trans fats. So your saturated fats and your trans fats are the fats that are going to really clog on to your arteries and cause things like high blood pressure, heart disease. While they are fine in moderation, you really don't want to be eating them that often. Another one that we always talk about is alcohol. And unfortunately, alcohol is quite inflammatory to the body. So first thing alcohol hits is your stomach. You take your first sip of alcohol and immediately it lands in your stomach and it starts an inflammatory response. And if you think about alcohol, the only way to get rid of that is through your liver. So your liver is one of your best detoxification organs. It takes out all the toxins from all your food and drink and alcohol and drugs and excretes it. 
So when you're constantly bombarding your body with things like your trans fats, your saturated fats, your high sugars, your alcohol, really your body is under so much stress that you can't utilize it properly. You can't do the things. You're not going to sleep well. You're going to be more predisposed to things like anxiety and depression and you're going to put on extra weight. So yeah, it's certainly something that we would want to limit in our diet. So by putting them stressing foods or substances into your body, you actually create disease, but also mental issues like depression and anxiety. People wouldn't relate that with food. Yeah, and it's a new enough phenomenon. A few of your listeners might have heard of it. It's called the gut-brain axis. It's something that was always there. Of course, it was always there, but it wasn't discovered. And still to this day, there's huge amounts of money going into the gut-brain axis and discovering where this link is. And it's a link that really has not been explored enough yet. So we do understand that your brain and your gut have a signaling system somehow. They are communicating constantly, but we don't know just the mechanism just yet. So there is, for example, people with epilepsy which is a condition where you kind of go into epileptic fits and spasms. Since the 1920s, one of the curative and preventative measures for epilepsy is the ketogenic diet. So ketogenic diet is your low carbohydrate, high fat. The link there between the gut and the brain is that for people with epilepsy, when they cut out the carbohydrate and they eat the fat, they go into something called ketosis, which is where your body uses fat as energy. So you basically create ketones and that has been shown to either prevent or reduce epileptic fits in certain people who the drugs weren't working. That's just one example of a very easy mechanism of how your gut and your brain are connected. But as I said, there's so many more things to explore. I mean, at a basic level, if you eat crap all day, you're going to feel crap inside. And that's both emotionally and physically. They haven't quite discovered the nutrient link there. But anyone will tell you if you eat bad food for long enough, you're going to feel really bad in yourself. And It's both on an emotional level and a kind of psychiatric level. Excellent. I totally agree. I wanted to get into the gut brain because I do a lot of actually meditation with the head, the heart and the gut linking the three together. And they say that the neural networks in the gut are the size of a cat's brain and that we actually produce a lot of our serotonin there, which is our happy and pride hormone. And if you're smashing that gut with crap food, Of course, you're not going to produce happy hormones. So it's going to have a massive psychiatric link. It's pretty hard sometimes to explain that to clients though. I don't know if you feel the same, but what I find difficult is that without the science, like healthcare professionals are all based on science or most of them are, you know, and it's all about the most recent papers that came out and the most recent research. And for something like the gut-brain axis, when you don't have all the leading research and top papers to back you up, it can be very hard to explain because it's just such an undiscovered area. And we certainly at a clinical level in the hospital would not talk about it that much mainly because it does fall under the kind of psychiatric kind of side. So until we get really concrete evidence, we're not going to get guidelines to be able to give people concrete advice. But anecdotally, I have so many patients who have basically cured themselves through diet and cured themselves from depression and cured themselves from anxiety. But a lot of them don't just use nutrition, they use a whole lifestyle intervention. So it's diet, it's sleep, it's meditation, it's exercise. They rarely come as one and they rarely cure as one. You just name my four pillars I do every day. Try and have good sleep, eat well, exercise and do some form of mental stuff like meditation. And it's lifestyle medicine, isn't it? Absolutely. 
I think you and I spoke about this before. Okay, your profession is your profession, but you know, with something like dietetics, how can I talk to someone about food without talking about their life? Food is life. How do you stay alive? You eat food. The reason people choose the food they eat is so important. Why do they choose that food? Why are people turning to fatty foods? Why are people turning to sugar? It's because they're stressed. And stress falls under, as you said, another pillar. And things that solve stress, while I mightn't be able to solve stress, I can recommend that people do things like meditation, things like exercise, go to their physio to cure their chronic pain. And maybe then, if they're overweight, they'll be able to tackle that then. Also, I don't think it's ever effective to go to someone with one solution and one solution that's only relevant to your profession. I think multidisciplinary team efforts and, you know, using everyone in the healthcare profession can be way more useful than you just trying to push your own agenda. I totally agree. Stress. Where have we started with stress? You mentioned the body goes into a state of fight or flight. And when you're in fight or flight, it's not going to care about breaking down food. If anything, what happens there? I see this a lot. You're in a constant state of stress, flying through life, and you're trying to lose weight and you're eating good food. It's nearly impossible to lose weight, is it? So there's actually something called, I won't go into the science of it, but it's basically where when you're in a constant state of stress, your stomach holds on to food. So someone who is stressed when they eat, their stomach is in a fight mode. And like through evolution, if we were in fight mode, your body says, hold on to everything we can because we mightn't get it for a long time if we're in battle or if we're fighting something. So your body actually holds on to all its reserves. So it's been proven that people who are chronically stressed will have more fat deposition. They'll put on more fat. So rather than your body using all your energy efficiently, so you eat a meal and someone who's not stressed will be able to use the energy to go to their day-to-day life. They may deposit some protein in their muscles. They'll use the calcium for their teeth and their bones. Someone chronically stressed will hold on to this food in their stomach, but won't be absorbing it properly. So they're not going to get all the nutrients from that food and they're not going to utilize it to its best effect. What will actually happen is they'll start to put on more fat. So what you're getting is someone who's constantly meeting this wall where they're trying their best and they're eating all the right foods and they think they're doing the right thing. But actually, the best time for your body to recoup is during sleep. So if you're not getting your seven and a half, eight hours, your body is not going through the fasted state. So people who are stressed are quite often not getting their proper sleep. So when your body sleeps, you're probably fasting for about eight hours, give or take. It's quite rare for people to get up in the middle of the night and have a snack. So that sleep time is a fasting time and that allows your body to go and mop up all the dead cells. So it allows your body to go and basically do all the work. It's like a little Trojan horse. So you're sleeping, you're recovering and it's mopping up all the dead cells and it's allowing yourself to be your best self when you wake up in the morning. For someone who is stressed, they're probably not getting a great sleep. So they might be shifting in the night, might be a little bit insomniac. So they're not getting that full eight hours of benefit. Then they're going through their day. So if you go into your morning working day stressed, you're probably going to go for your fatty foods because that's what your body's telling you to do. It's like here, you're having a crap day. Reach for that fatty food because that's what I want. Your body wants fat and sugar. So your body's going to tell you to go for the chocolate bar because that's going to make you feel good for the next half hour. But what happens after the half hour, you've had the sugar hit and you go into a crash and you feel even worse. And then that's just the chronic cycle that happens. And unfortunately, stress is something that I think, I don't know the statistics, but a large majority of the population, young and old, are dealing with on a day-to-day basis. And especially with the last year we've just had. I totally agree. People are presenting to me with varieties of pain I've never seen, like sporadic arm pain. And it's mainly stress-related, especially in the second lockdown. So where do you start with someone who's stressed out? I'll give you a perfect example. I had this guy with me today, lovely man, overweight, 
obstructive sleep apnea, believe it or not, and just got diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. Very hard worker and just running through life. Stress levels, I asked him, are on average 7 out of 10. And he's overweight, doesn't really sleep well either. Where do you start with that? Like, it's obvious if he did the four pillars we talked, but what's the starting point? I can only speak on a nutritional level, of course. I don't have expertise in the others. But where I would start with a patient like that is take it right back to basics. Get into your core nutrition. And your core nutrition is good, healthy, balanced eating. And it's the food pyramid. You won't believe the reception we get to the food pyramid. People adore it. It is so simple. It has five levels and it tells you exactly what you should be having. The biggest level is at the bottom, which is your fruit and your veg and your brown carbohydrates. So your whole grains and your whole wheat. And it goes up and at the top of that little triangle is your treat foods. And the reason the treat foods are there is because they're not relevant. They're not needed in the diet. So if I go to someone who is chronically stressed and they are dealing with all these comorbidities and I say, look, all we need to start at is the food pyramid. They take a breath and they're like, oh my God, I thought you were going to tell me something awful. Like I thought I was going to have to do a diet or do these crazy restrictive things with their diet. But it's never that. It's always bringing it back. Often what I find is helpful is giving back people control. So allowing them to know that they do not have to be perfect seven days a week. And that's not reality. Often people think the dietitian is going to come in and overhaul their whole diet and restrict everything and give them this really strict Monday to Sunday diet and they can't deviate from that. But never is that the case. We always go at it from a holistic approach. So it's all about doing the best you can while you can. And if there's a day where you're feeling awful and you cheat, and you have a bad day and you eat unhealthy foods or less healthy foods, you can always get back on the bandwagon the next day and you can start all over again. And we try to empower people with the tools to do that. So something simple could be something like a food diary. Allowing people to write down what they're eating from morning to noon can really help people to identify the time of day where they're struggling. So often people are quite good in the morning because they get up and they're feeling rejuvenated. They feel like they can tackle their morning quite well and their afternoon quite well. It's in the evening we find a lot that people slip. So they kind of get home, they're relaxing, they might have kids to look after and that's when they start into the snacking. And unfortunately, the worst time to snack is in the evening, unless you have certain diseases. But if you're having high sugar snacks in the evening, it's going to cause you to be awake more into the night and you're going to have a less effective sleep. So that's one thing. Another thing I do in my private consultations, and it's kind of about providing more support, is that I actually go shopping with people. So some people who, as you've just described, are just living with these diseases or even just living with chronic stress and a busy lifestyle. What can be the most daunting for them is going into a supermarket where there's hundreds of thousands of products staring at them and they just have no idea what to choose. They've been seeing adverts on the news, they've been seeing social media posts and they just don't know where to start. So what I like to do is I like to go shopping with them. So we go into the supermarket and we literally just start picking up the things they'd usually buy. And I pick up a comparison that might be lower in fat, lower in salt, lower in sugar. And we just sit there and we compare them. And we do it twice, three, four times until they feel comfortable going shopping on their own. So again, that can be just a really nice empowering tool for someone to know that they don't have to be scared of going shopping anymore. They kind of know what they're looking for on a nutrition label and they know the things that will be best for them and best for their family. Another thing, I suppose, is again, back to the basics. So myth busting is a massive one. We'll often get people in who are following really restrictive diets. So they might be on Atkins diets. They might be on vegan diets because they heard that it cures certain diseases. So often a lot of our work is myth busting and informing our patients that really the science behind that might be as well backed as other research on nutrition that might affect their disease or might improve their disease. So I'd say they're some of the main things I come across on a day-to-day basis. 
Excellent. So strip it right back down to the basics and empower the patient and educate them. It's so simple. Yeah. It's exactly what I do with physio, with pain. Like if a patient leaves knowing exactly what's going on, that's half the battle. Well done. So what is your philosophy around nutrition? That's a good question. Look, I'm only starting out and I bet you this will change. You know, I'm only in my first year at the moment. But I suppose nutrition as a life cycle is definitely what inspired me to get into this. So at the moment, what I'm seeing is people at the end of their cycle where they're coming to me with all these diseases and all these, exactly as you said, chronic pain, comorbidities like diabetes, cardiac disease. And unfortunately, a lot of these diseases could have been prevented had they have followed a different diet and a different lifestyle. So I suppose what inspired me to get into this was had these people have known what they could have done, had they have followed a different path, they would be in a completely different position now. So I suppose all about preventative, like using nutrition as a preventative medicine, as well as a curative medicine, but stripping it right back to the people in their 20s and 30s. And hopefully some of them are your listeners today and empowering that age group with all the nutrition education that's out there at the moment and allowing them to pave their path for a healthy life in older age. That's definitely one of the reasons I set up my private business was to catch that younger age group before all that happens and before they've gone down that path. Another reason would be just engaging with the public and engaging with the different public health guidelines that are coming out at the moment. So I suppose really social media has been amazing in so many ways, but it's also been slightly detrimental for something like nutritional messaging that's going out at the moment. I mean, even for someone like myself with seven years experience, some of the nutritional messages that come out are really conflicting and really confusing. So I really want to engage with the public on a level where using social media and using my private business as well to educate people on what the messages mean and what the guidelines coming out at the moment are based on and making it really, really simple for people so that they can utilize all the amazing science that's coming out, but utilize it in a way that's going to be beneficial versus causing more confusion to the whole thing. So I suppose I don't have a perfect line for my philosophy, but it's certainly about empowerment, education using really good science and making it just really accessible for people. That's perfect. Empowerment, education, using good science and accessibility. I like it. And with the people where the disease could have been prevented, have they recovered from disease using nutrition? Yes, there are certainly diseases that can be reversed. A good example is type 2 diabetes. Type 2 diabetes is a reversible disease. It's a very scary diagnosis to be given for someone hearing that they have type 2 diabetes, which is caused by an unhealthy diet and lifestyle and weight gain. But what's also really empowering for them is for us to be able to say, look, although you've been given this diagnosis and you may be on medication, if we work closely together, we can allow you to change your diet, change your lifestyle, lose weight and hopefully reverse the condition. So that's a simple example. Other examples, and they are more, again, anecdotal. I don't really want to get into the science because the science isn't there yet. But in things like multiple sclerosis, it's another one that's really emerging at the moment, the impact nutrition can have on MS. A lot of people are leading the way and they are people with the disease themselves. It's a diet and lifestyle that's very simple. It's, again, healthy eating, so lots of fish. A lot of people are going gluten-free and a lot of people are going dairy-free or lactose-free with MS and they're seeing huge results and huge results being no episodes in the last few years. And again, it's anecdotal and the science is still yet to be found, but that's hugely promising, again, for someone giving a diagnosis where they're told they may be in a wheelchair in 10 years to know that they can maybe include some of these quite 
easy dietary interventions like, you know, giving up dairy, swapping it for plant-based milk, soy cheeses and things like that. And they could actually prevent themselves from being quadriplegic in 10 years. Like that's huge. That's huge. And we need the funding and we need the science to be able to back it. But there are people out there. And if you type it into Google, you will find huge anecdotal evidence supporting that. So it's kind of a watch this space thing. But absolutely, there are so many diseases that are reversible through nutrition. Watch this space is right. A lot of people try and out-train a bad diet. I see that a lot of the times. Like that guy, he was working really, really, really hard, but his nutrition isn't great. And look, again, of course, you'll have people that just diet and lose all the weight and you'll have loads of anecdotal evidence of that but it's totally a balance I mean there's no point doing either if you have a really good diet and you end up restricting loads and you lose loads of weight but you're not doing the right training and you can back me up on this I mean your muscle mass will be through the floor so yeah you may have lost the weight and you may have come down in your weight percentage but really you're coming out the other end with deconditioning so you're deconditioned muscle wise and equally on the other side of things so if you're doing amazing training and you're running five days a week and you're doing your weight bearing training and yet you're coming home every evening and you're having a terrible diet. Again, yes, you might lose some weight because you're training very hard and you're using up the energy, but you're not going to come out the other end with all the health benefits that we would have hoped. So again, I think it's a complete balance. Nutrition is really important on so many levels for, as we spoke about already, not just physical health, but it makes you feel good mentally. And so does exercise. So exercise is really important physically, but again, it has so many impacts on your mental health. So I think why not use these in combination? It's such a lovely combo and it's such a synergistic combination to use together. It is. And when you train better, you eat better. When you eat better, you normally train. With emotions. So I'd be a bit of a comfort eater. I'm not going to lie. Is that a big thing you might get into emotional eating or what do you see common? Would it be like people are eating bad food because they're sad or what is it? I mean, you don't need an expert to talk about that. Emotional eating is everywhere. Anyone from a young child to an elderly woman will comfort eat. And it's just a natural thing. You crave sugar and you crave fat. That's your biology. So you're stressed or sad. You're going to crave the comfort foods, what makes your body feel good, which is fat and sugar. And again, we're never going to scaremonger and tell people they can't comfort eat because I can tell you now, most dietitians comfort eat. We all do. And that's fine. And what's really important is educating people that it's okay to comfort eat. You are going to have those days in the week where you have had a really tough day and all you want to turn to is your hot chocolate. But it's about knowing what to do the next day and knowing, okay, I've had my hot chocolate. I threw a few marshmallows in it, but tomorrow I'm going to get up and I'm going to start again and I'm going to have my banana on toast and I'm going to have my porridge. What can happen on the other side of things is that people, they binge eat once or they comfort eat once and then they say, oh, well, I've ruined it now. I've had chocolate. I'm just going to have the whole bar. I'm going to have the two bars. And, you know, since I've done that now, I'm going to have the bag of crisps and why not go for it all and have the hot chocolate as well? And that's really common. It's this almost self-shaming thing. And I've ruined my good streak now, so I may as well keep going. That's something we try and prevent. We try and allow people to know that it's okay to have a day where you have something that mightn't be that healthy, but you can stop and you can control it and you can make it back up the next day and it's not the end of the world. What may be detrimental is if you shame yourself into feeling so bad that actually you go into this really detrimental cycle of worthlessness and you end up treating yourself badly and eating all this bad food continuously and continuously because you feel like that's all you deserve. That's something psychologically that we would really try and prevent. It's easier said than done. Psychology around nutrition is something that, again, has so much more exploring to do, but 
if you talk to someone like a human being and you give advice like that and make them feel like it's okay and make them feel like they're supported and they can always talk to you about days when they maybe have had a bad day, then usually they'll come back fighting. Well, you're removing guilt and you're nearly teaching self-care. If you're teaching self-care, they won't get caught in that cycle. It is tough though. I see a lot of that, the guilt cycle and a bad day becomes a bad week. So what is it just saying it's okay? Empowering them, is that it? Yeah, absolutely. And there's other options. I mean, what you can always do is if someone finds themselves as a comfort eater and finds that they do have days when they really just need to have that comfort food, what you can do is you can give them the tools to have something maybe that's not as bad for them. So if they really crave a sugary treat, it could be something like replacing the Mars bar with something like a flapjack rather than just having the sugar and the caramel and the chocolate. They're still getting their sugar hit, but they're having oats, they're having fibre, they're having a bit of honey, they're having nuts, fruit, but they're still getting the sugar hit. So that's another angle you can take. It doesn't work for everyone, but you can allow them to have the choice, but give them the knowledge of there are something that's similar, like even a lot of people go for something like, you know, the Muller yogurts with the chocolate bits on the side. And they say, oh no, but I'm having a yogurt. All it is is about acknowledging that yes it is a yogurt but you're probably looking for the chocolate element and that's why you're going for that but you're telling yourself that it's the good yogurt so all you need to do there is say look you can absolutely have that if you like but another option would be for your greek yogurt shave some dark chocolate into it and throw a few blueberries in it you're getting the same effect but you're getting all your natural fiber and it's not such a processed product so that's kind of where giving people the knowledge to use themselves on a day-to-day basis when you're not there holding their hand can be quite useful. Yeah, them small tweaks are so effective. The Greek yogurt to the shavings makes so much sense. And you mentioned just the food that it's important. The way I use it with clients is I talk about putting petrol or diesel in your car. It's simple. We don't put petrol in a diesel car. We don't put diesel in a petrol car. That's how important food is. And... I don't know. I sometimes think like I'm talking to people that don't get it. What's going on there? Is it just commercialism? Is it we go into the shop and all we see is Mars bars everywhere and wispies or whatever they are? I don't know why wispy came into my mind. What is it like? Why isn't it so obvious? I suppose you've hit the nail on the head with the commercialism. What's easier to do? Is it easier to throw a microwave meal in the microwave, go up, have a shower, come down five minutes later and you've got a chicken curry sitting on your plate? Or is it easier to go and start cooking from scratch, chopping your veg, chopping your meat? It's a no-brainer. Of course, it's going to be easier to go for the microwave meal. And the thing is, life's hard. Life's busy. No one's life is easy. It is way easier to go into the shop and just pick up the quickest thing and the cheapest thing. And unfortunately, and it's the thing that really, really grinds my gears, is that unhealthy food is the cheapest food. So it is actually cheaper to go into the frozen aisle and buy a load of frozen processed meats and chicken nuggets and waffles and make a dinner out of that than it is to go and chop up some potatoes and do some oven baked chicken or something. So that's where, as I said, one of my philosophies is education. You're never going to fight the commercialism. You are never going to be the winner in that battle. Marketing is everywhere. Advertising is everywhere. Our one tool to help people is to educate them on making those choices. But we're not sitting here saying that it's easy to be healthy because being healthy takes preparation. It does take a little bit of willpower to avoid those sections in the shop and go to the healthy aisles where you're getting your fresh fruit and your fresh veg and your fresh meat and your fresh fish. But it's also about, again, educating people on ways that they can still shop cheaply but healthily. So I don't think we're ever going to win the arguments like you go into Tesco and the last thing you see at the tail is a row of chewing gums, a row of chocolate bars. 
all they're trying to do is for you to make a really quick purchase at the end. So you've just done really well and you've bought all your healthy stuff and then you go to the tail and you're bombarded with these two for one deals or these share bars. So all we can do and all we can say to people is that there are other ways. There are other ways and all it's going to take is a tiny bit of preparation and a tiny bit of habit change. So understanding that really whatever you put into your body is what's going to come out in a few years. And the thing is, it's not going to affect you now. What you eat now will probably not affect you tomorrow, will probably not affect you the next day. But what you eat now will certainly affect you in 20 years. And I mean that in the good respect and the bad respect. I mean, if you have a healthy diet now and you look after yourself and you get good sleep and you get good exercise, you'll probably be the same person in 20 years and you'll have a really healthy outlook on life and you'll be a healthy person. But unfortunately, if you treat your body with I don't like calling them bad foods, but unhealthy foods. So you're having, you know, your high fat diet, your high sugar diet now. You're probably not going to get diabetes right now, but you will in 20 years time. You will put on weight in 20 years. You won't have the muscle mass that you need in 20 years time to cope with the other diseases that you might have. And your even physical ability, as I'm sure you're well aware, won't be that optimal. But I don't want to sit here and say it's easy because I don't think healthy eating is exactly the easiest thing, but it's certainly the best thing. I agree with you. And you've just brought up that case of being proactive versus reactive, which I think is the biggest challenge in healthcare. How do we help people other than education? What can we do? Is education the answer? Stop bad ads? What is it? God, that's a good question. What can we do? We're all only human, like you and I are just one person seeing yeah. five people a day, six people a day. And yeah. while we have great impact, I think on a broader scale, what we can do, that's why I keep coming back to education. Like yeah. you can put out your message to a thousand people with one post, whereas meeting one person on one day, you may give that message. They may pass that on to their family members, maybe, but it probably stops there. Whereas if you have the confidence like you do, Jason, to set up something like this podcast, you are hopefully reaching 10 times, 20 times, 30 times that amount of people. And hopefully the message sticks with just one or two. And hopefully they will go on to pass that message on. But yeah, I mean, it's a million dollar question. How can we have big change? I mean, public health. Tough one, because that that thing, I'm like, I get sad with some clients. I'm like, Janie, if I seen them five years ago, I could have really helped them. But I don't think they would have been looking for help five years ago. And I think it's very important that you highlighted that what we do right now doesn't impact us right now. It impacts us in 10, 15, 20 years. Yeah, but it's also really nice. It's a really enlightening message too. I didn't mean that to be scary. I meant that to be really positive. And like for all our people listening today, it starts today. It doesn't start tomorrow. Why not start now? That's the message. You don't need to buy a science book or the best recipe book to start. You can literally make these tiny changes and we're so lucky that all the information is at our fingertips now. So I find that really empowering for people at the same time. Yes, yeah, so do I. You really can change your life in one minute. Two things I want to discuss. Food prep. A lot of people talk about this. It really works. If I prep my food on a Sunday, I really have a good week. Do you prep your food? Would you advise that to clients? I do. Now, I will be hands up very honest. Some weeks it just doesn't happen. I find personally, if I'm good on a Sunday and I get all my meal prep done, then I'm sorted for the week. So I'll do a big pot of something like a chili or a big lasagna or something. And then I'll usually do my favorite thing is a falafel salad. So I'll buy all my falafels during my shopping on a Sunday. And I'll usually have something like a falafel wrap or something for my lunches. And then I'll have my meal prepped 
for two or three days and then I'm lucky to have great cooks at home so I'll often come home to a nice home-cooked meal some evenings but if I have a bad week and I have a bad Sunday and I don't do my supermarket shop and I don't do my meal prep I really find that I need a lot of willpower to pull myself back on the Monday because the minute that working week starts you're almost on the back foot I don't know do you feel the same? Yeah, I'd prep on a Sunday for three days just to Wednesday because I don't think I'm skilled enough to prep for five days, to be honest. And if I start Monday, I start the week off well, the week will normally go well. Your best friend is your freezer. I hear that excuse all the time. Oh no, the food won't keep in the fridge and there's no point in doing more than one day because, you know, I won't have anywhere to keep it. All food's freezable unless it's something like a salad. So if you have the wherewithal to just do a big pot of something on a Sunday, you can freeze that for weeks and you can pull that out at the time that you need it. So I think your freezer is certainly your best friend in that respect. That's one thing I definitely don't do. I need to do a bit more. What's the one thing? So I always talk with clients, the one thing they could change that will make the biggest impact. A lot of the times I make it specific to the client who I'm with. What's the one common thing that you might see the biggest rewards in nutrition? That's a really hard one because as you've just said, everything about nutrition is about individualization and tailoring. But I suppose pairing it back to basics, if everyone could cut out processed foods for as much as they could, I think that would show the most benefit at a population level. But could really bring it back to their natural fruits, their natural veg. Try and pair it back, try and pair it back to your lean meats, your fish your normal breads, your grains, your pastas, your rices, and try and cut out all that jarred food, all the stuff that comes. Tins are fine, actually, but a lot of the jarred sauces, a lot of the processed foods, like your frozen microwave meals, your ready-to-eat soups, they have a place on a night where you're really busy and a night that you don't have time. But really, if we could cut out all the processed foods, I'd say our sugar, our salt, and our fat levels at a population level would be remarkably reduced. Yeah, that's a great way to start, isn't it? And I don't know if this is true. I read stats there, nutrition stats, that one in three are children are obese and two in three are overweight. Is that true? I don't know that stat personally, but I suppose, yeah, you can certainly see it. And even at school age kids, I think we're finding that weight has certainly gone up. I wouldn't know the stats personally, but I think that kind of brings it back to who are we educating? We're educating the parents at that level. So the kids don't have any fault in that. The kids aren't buying their food. The kids are being given this food. And I think that's something where, you know, starting with someone before they've even had kids. So if someone themselves is following a good diet and a good lifestyle and they're looking after themselves, it's most likely that they'll do the same for their kids. And I'm not trying to say that any parent wants anything bad for their kids. Of course they don't. But if someone doesn't treat themselves well and doesn't do their own self-searching and educate themselves on nutrition and lifestyle, then how are they meant to do the same for their children? So while I don't know the stats, I mean, look, I think we certainly have an issue. We certainly have a lot of work to do for our younger population. Even the levels of junk that they're eating is pretty scary. All the marketing that are done to kids, primetime TV, there's adverts going out to kids about chocolate and fast food. There's a lot of research going on at the moment with the proximity of takeaway shops and takeaway markets in their proximity to primary schools and secondary schools. And like that just says it all. The fact that they have to do studies on that is really harrowing. And again, kids just have access to more at the moment. Kids are being given more responsibility. So I suppose that's, again, a public health issue, isn't it? Yeah. Obesity levels and the overweight levels are definitely rising in children, which is scary considering screen times are rising as well. 
Like when I was a kid, I was really lucky to just climb up a tree and play all day. So if I did eat poor food, sugar like that, I was burning it constantly. But kids aren't doing that at the moment because they have phones. And let's be honest, phones are addictive. They're great in some way, but they are addictive. They're made so we spend more time in them. So that's the one thing I see anyway with kids coming in to me with injuries. They're not as fit and they have increased weight. And that's definitely an initiative that's going out at the moment. And there's ads on it. It's how to treat your kids with something other than food. So using things like stickers, using things like mini toys, using things like time. So if you're good in school, you can have time to play with your parents in the evening. And like that's things that you don't think are rewarding, but that's so much more rewarding to a kid than a piece of chocolate. Yeah, I hear you. <laughs> Sometimes chocolate is nice though too. Yeah, it is. <laughs> what credentials have you got? That was a long, grueling path. I was just a bit of a silly 18-year-old. You know when you're filling out your CAO and you know what you want, but you don't know. Like I always wanted to get into healthcare. So I thought about nursing and I thought about medicine. And then I always loved food. I was always baking. I was always cooking. And I was trying to think how to combine that. So dietetics was on my mind, but I was also thinking food science. So I did a bachelor's in food science for four years in UCD. And that was brilliant. I wouldn't change that for the world. Loved it. But it was far more based on, you know, the food industry and food product development and things. So I realized there was a huge gap there when I was in food science. So I wanted to go into something with more human interaction. So I kind of did my research and I realized it was dietetic. I had a gap in my knowledge of anatomy and physiology. So you can't go into dietetics without those two modules. So my only way to get into dietetics was to go up north. I went up to Coleraine and I studied clinical human nutrition up there for a year, which was very daunting. Moved up to Coleraine, had never heard of it before. I had never heard of the university before, but I took a leap of faith and again, wouldn't change it for the world, met amazing people. There's some leading experts in dietetics up there doing amazing research on B vitamins and vitamin D, big names. So I was lucky enough to be lectured by them. And then thankfully, I got into the two-year master's down in Dublin. So I did a master's in clinical dietetics there for the last two years. Again, that was a really competitive master's to get into. So was really fortunate. Only 20 people get in and it's only been running three years. Thankfully, I got into that. And yeah, I haven't looked back. Absolutely loved it. So I'm kind of trying everything now. So I'm doing a bit of clinical work and then I'm doing a bit of private work in the evenings and weekends. So yeah, I'm just kind of finding my feet at the moment, but it's going well. They're serious accomplishments. What's it like putting them into practice? Amazing. But look, no matter how many letters come after your name, nothing can replace being there physically and getting the practical experience in because that's what it's all about and that's where you learn the most. No person is the same as the next and no patient is the same as the next. So I did tons of theory. I did three theses and that was all brilliant and I've learned loads of science. But what I found most beneficial was learning the different complexities of each disease and how different people are affected by different diseases. And I suppose using behaviour change is a massive one and that's something you learn in a module in college, but you never get to put into practice until you're in the hospital. So that's all about encouraging people, empowering people, giving them the tools, giving them the guidance and support. And that's definitely one of the most effective things that I've been learning in the last few months when I started in the hospital. And that seems to be our message, doesn't it? Yeah. Definitely empowering people and educating people. Yeah. And I just think we're so fortunate at the moment to be given such a big platform. You have your podcast. Instagram, I must say, I think it's amazing. As I said earlier, you can get one message out in one post, depending on how many you have 10,000, 50,000 people. Like that's huge. And that's an amazing platform. And I think we need to use it to our advantage. And I think that's how you're going to get the messages out there. 
we can help people on the ground with our one-to-one consultations. But really, if you want to make an impact and a big impact, it's about reaching as many people as you can at one time. Is that your purpose? I don't know yet. I hope so. I would love that. I would love both. I don't think I'll ever give up my clinical work because it's way too important. I need that human interaction and I adore that on a day-to-day basis. I wake up and I genuinely look forward to going to work, which I think is more valuable than anything. But it also annoys me so much, the stuff I hear on a day-to-day basis about the confusion around nutrition. And all I want to do is put up that message on Instagram and post it. And whoever sees it, if it's only one person or if it's a thousand people, at least I might have clarified that for someone. So I'm trying to keep my messages on Instagram really, really simple. I'm kind of doing it in a little bit of a series. So at the moment, I'm doing cardiac health. So I'm basically myth busting on Instagram. So I'm putting up the most common confusion that is out there and basically trying to give the most simple messages. So again, that's a bit of firefighting. Unfortunately, we've people on social media who, again, don't mean any harm, but they don't have the qualifications to be giving the advice that they're giving. And they're putting out messages that can be really detrimental and really confusing. So I think since we've been given the platform, why not use it? That's excellent. Where can people find out more about you? As I said, I have an Instagram account, Everybody Dietetics. So it's every underscore body dietetics is my handle. And then I also have a website, so www.everybodydietetics.com. Excellent. It's a great website. Did they book in with you and they go shopping with you? Absolutely. It's great crack. We have great fun. I better finish up there. We'll be talking for a night. Thanks so much, Elaine. I actually learned a lot, so thank you. Oh no, it was such a pleasure and I hope I clarified a few things and it's been absolutely brilliant. Thanks for having me on. You definitely did. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed the podcast and got something from it. Please share it if you can. And it'd be really, really great if you could leave a review on iTunes. Thank you, folks. Have a great week.